This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde rattles through Rishi's first week. Journalist Alexis Petridis talks to singer Louis Capaldi about staying grounded in the limelight. At this spooky time of year, columnist Guy Lodge dissects the history of queer horror. And finally, technology editor Alex Hearn explores the seemingly innocuous algorithm that pushed TikTok to the top of its game. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, as our third Prime Minister in 50 days stood behind yet another bespoke lectern this week, Marina Hyde drinks in Rishi Sunak's first week as leader. Read by Robin Holdaway. Here we are then. The UK Prime Minister has regenerated as Rishi Sunak. After several seasons of some of the worst writing in political primetime, which occasionally looked capable of killing off the entire franchise. The country has its first British Asian Prime Minister, which is a truly significant historical moment. It would be nice to think that people who can accept Downing Street being cast in this way will eventually be able to handle the really important roles, like telly time travellers and movie spies, being played by non-white actors without losing their minds and reaching for the word woke. On Tuesday morning, Liz Truss addressed the nation in Downing Street and shared the key takeaway of her stint as the shortest-serving Prime Minister in British political history. She was right, and everyone else was wrong. Hey, she's Elizabeth Seneca Truss, and she will have her hot take in this life or the next. The rest of us are merely tasked with living through the clean-up. Still, on to Rishi. 
Who is this new leading man with the hair of a latex Ronald Reagan mask and the smile of a guy informing the camera, like Lord Sugar, I play to win? Who is this highly acclaimed knitwear influencer possessed of a godlike ability to identify James Purse Cashmere, not simply by season, but by gauge and ply? Who is this guy whose most relatable personality trait seems to be Star Wars fan, yet who genuinely described the rise of Skywalker as a great night out? Who is this new Prime Minister who was once, for really quite a long time back there, the Conservative Party's idea of a cool person? Watching his speech outside number 10 on Tuesday morning, many commentators seem to have found Sunak's gravitas convincing, but you do have to set that against the fact that, as Chancellor, he couldn't even convince his own wife to pay him tax. It'll be interesting to see if he can convince his own MPs to vote for things they're not crazy about. He seemed to go on an awful lot about the 2019 manifesto for a guy who'll soon be advising them to burn it for warmth. Even the Tory grandees honking about how supremely sensible Sunak is and we'll have more on them in a minute, might have to decide how real they like their real politic. Back in April, I was very struck by a quote on Sunak's Ukraine thinking, given to the Sunday Times by one of his allies. He thinks Putin will still be there, and that there will have to be a deal with him, this ran. And, if that's the case, is it really worth the pain to the economy? Does he still think that? Let the journey of discovery commence. As for the voters, they're another known unknown. Hand on heart, I've never been able to shake the image of Sunak doing a thumbs up through the window of a kitchenware shop during the pandemic. A picture he tweeted with the words, I can't wait to get back to the pub and I don't even drink. It's unclear what the public will make of Rishi Sunak. British people tend to be more relaxed about a number of sex crimes than they are about the voluntary rejection of alcohol. The former Chancellor's previous practice of appending his signature to Instagrammable government spending announcements led to the accusation that he was too slick. Those days are certainly in the past. I don't ask for a lot, it saves time, but I do like a Prime Minister who looks convincingly able to exit his own front door in one take. Perhaps Sunak will learn on the job, like he did with the card reader. It occasionally feels like there's something wrong with his circuitry. Monday's speech at Conservative HQ had all the easy charm of a sedated train operator gearing up for his 300th delivery of the epigram See it, say it, sorted. Tuesday's Downing Street speech was at least an improvement on that, but saw Sunak return to the CBB's bedtime stories delivery he favoured during Covid. Hey there, guys. Hope you're all sitting comfortably in your PJs, even though I'm going to have to tax all nightwear and make some very, very difficult decisions about your teddies. Away from the Westminster bubble, you sense the electorate may struggle to move on from the past few weeks quite as easily as the Tory grandees currently swarming the airwaves to explain that the natural party of government is back in town. Their takes seem to be based on a somewhat adorable view of the British public, 
that if you look them in the eye and call them sir, they'll actually be very chilled about their financial hardship having significantly increased, specifically because of your party's recent actions. Like me, you may have read a quite mind-bogglingly load of bollocks about the new dawns and grown-ups and sensible people being back in charge and how, eventually, the system has proved robust and worked. Really? The government of the United Kingdom has been effectively paralysed since Boris Johnson's July resignation statement, even as the country slid deeper into its many interwoven crises. We've just witnessed seven weeks of pure chaos, which have demonstrably and measurably made an already dire situation worse for people in a way that now has to be part of future calculations. Huge thanks to all these guys wanging on about the system working on the very day our third Prime Minister in 50 days is appointed. But do me a favour, get out of your wing-backed armchair or your web browser and wander down any high street in the land going, well sir, I think you'll find the system has worked and see how you get on. I certainly hooted my way through a column in The Times by former Tory leader William Hague, suggesting that Sunak's election has immediately restored the UK to some kind of vibes-based international order. A highly competent team of ministers from across the party can be assembled, Hague insisted, apparently casting Sunak as a Westminster Nick Fury convening the Avengers. Well... A highly competent team can be assembled, and yet, just as I was about to press send on this article, I see that Sunak has brought the sensationally low-competence, low-caliber Suella Braverman back as Home Secretary. What has she ever achieved, bar annoying all the right people? She's only had one week off after her security breach. Oh my God, hang on, Oliver Dowden too? Dowden? Dominic effing Rab? Forgive me, forgive me. We mustn't interrupt the grown-ups talking over our heads. After being an object of global pity in recent months, Haig went on to explain, Britain will again be an example of government being conducted with professionalism, honesty and reliability. Hmm, I do, as a general rule, try to steer clear of political predictions, but... Let's wait and see, shall we? Marina Hyde, dissecting Westminster in chaos, again. Read by Robin Holdaway. Next, he's had number ones on both sides of the Atlantic, won two Brits and been nominated for a Grammy, but has managed to keep his old friends back in Scotland and still looks for dates on Tinder. The reluctant superstar Louis Capaldi talks to Alexis Petridis about mental health, fame and his new album. Read by Jeff Newland. In March 2020, just before the UK went into lockdown, Louis Capaldi played the biggest gigs of his career, a string of shows around Britain's arenas. The tickets had sold out in 60 seconds. Sometimes demand was such that he ended up playing the country's biggest venues two nights on the trot. It was supposed to be the crowning glory of an extraordinary 12 months, during which Capaldi had rocketed from the ranks of earnest, dressed-down, acoustic-guitar-toting singer-songwriters 
who had proliferated in the wake of Ed Sheeran's success, The Ordinary Boys, as this publication called them, to become a huge star. His single, Someone You Loved, entered the charts in 29 countries and spent seven weeks at number one in Britain. His debut album, divinely uninspired to a hellish extent, became the UK's biggest-selling album of 2019, a feat it would repeat in 2020. He won two Brits and was nominated for a Grammy, someone you loved having also gone to number one in the US, making him the first Scottish artist to top the US charts since Sheena Easton in 1981. I met him in Chicago at the end of 2019, and he talked about what had happened with the forthcoming shows in a tone of disbelief. I've gone from doing two nights at Barrowlands in Glasgow to 4,000 people, he said, to two nights at a 16,000 capacity arena. The arena gigs did not turn out as expected. Capaldi had panic attacks on stage, an experience he characterised as suddenly feeling mental while performing. He started to develop a twitch that, at its mildest, caused his left shoulder to jerk upwards and, at its most extreme, made his whole upper body twist around. It was subsequently diagnosed as Tourette syndrome. When I look back on it, it makes sense, he says now. I'm like, of course you were terrified. They were the biggest shows of your life. I was seeing how big things had actually become, and I was like, oh fuck. And the first two nights of the shows were at the Glasgow Hydro. Doesn't get more stressful than that. Two hometown shows to kick the thing off. If you stand in the middle of the hydro, it's a fucking coliseum. In fairness, Capaldi had regularly talked about experiencing anxiety before, while he was promoting divinely uninspired to a hellish extent, even setting aside a space at his gigs so that others at risk of anxiety or panic attacks could attend in relative comfort. But perhaps it got overlooked crowded out by the alternately bluff and self-deprecating persona he projects online and on stage, where what he calls his blether between songs can last noticeably longer than the songs themselves. By common consent, he is the most skilled practitioner of social media among modern pop stars, his Instagram and Twitter feeds unfailingly hilarious subversions of the heavily retouched perfection peddled by influencers. Recent posts... Capaldi posing coquettishly on a bed with the trophy you get when your single goes to number one, naked except for a pair of underpants in his socks. Capaldi shoveling pizza and beer into his mouth with the caption, hit 20 million streams in less than two weeks on Spotify and also lost my virginity, so tonight we celebrate. This time, however, the Tourette syndrome made his anxiety visible. He struggled to play guitar. A reviewer at Wembley Arena noticed it. He is deeply weird, a fidgety misfit and so did fans online. The general consensus was that Capaldi was off his head on cocaine. Someone was tweeting, he was definitely on drugs, the way he was moving, and the way he was talking. I'm like, I'm already an anxious person. Do you really think I'm going to smash loads of cocaine before I go and stand in front of 12,000 people? This isn't the fucking 70s. I'm not Tommy Lee. I can't handle that. And people on cocaine are usually bodily quite chilled. They just chat shit. He laughs. I mean, I do that a lot as well. He says the announcement of lockdown came as a strange relief. After the arena gigs, he was supposed to tour the US, supporting former One Direction star Niall Horan, then play a series of festivals, and he didn't want to go. Instead, he returned to his parents' home in Bathgate in West Lothian, 
and started writing songs for his second album, Broken by Desire to be Heavenly Sent, which is due out next May. I meet him in an annex to a plush hotel in Motherwell, where he and his band are already rehearsing the album for the world tour to accompany its release. He is, as he puts it, cautiously optimistic about its chances, his mood buoyed up by the fact that the first single from it, Forget Me, entered the charts at number one. His star shows little sign of waning. He spent the week before our meeting cutting a distinctive swathe through a succession of high-profile live television appearances, a string of apologies from their hosts for his famously robust language trailing in his wake. Capaldi is, by some distance, rock music's premier swearer, a state of affairs that, it should be pointed out, has nothing to do with Tourette syndrome. On the one show, they apologised for me saying I was chuffed to buggery about the single doing well. I didn't even know that counted as swearing, he says with a frown. They got off lightly. The last time I interviewed him, he said the word fuck 243 times in 90 minutes. I do feel pressure. I absolutely feel it, he says of his return. I felt it a lot during the recording and writing processes of the album, but at the end of the day, I think I have to just cut myself a bit of slack. All you can do in this situation is write the best songs you can and kind of remember this is supposed to be fun. I know there's money at stake now and the label are kind of keen to make money off the record and there's people who are watching and waiting for this album. Even people who think you're shite are waiting for it to come out so they can be like, I fucking told you it was shite all along. I'm trying to go easy on myself a little bit with it. He's also bullish about the fact that its contents largely fit with the formula that made his debut such a success. Forget Me is upbeat, but for the most part, it deals in big, heartrending ballads along the lines of someone you loved. All in all, the album's the same. I like making this music. It's done alright in the past, he says with a shrug. I don't have this sort of artistic desire to go off and reinvent myself, not at all. I feel like the same person, so why would I be searching for something new? I was very conscious about not writing an album about being famous, being successful. No one wants to hear, oh, I'm famous and my life's shit and I'm crying in my big house. I don't want to inflict that on people, especially now when people are actually going through some real shit, complaining about being famous. Oh, my fucking Bentley is a flat tyre. When I was writing the record, Covid was happening. Everyone was in their houses, so my lived experience at that time was the same four walls with my family stuck in the same place I grew up. I was quite literally right back where I was on the first record. If anything, getting famous and all the rest of it has made me sort of run back to my hometown and my family and friends and stuff. All these sorts of grounding things. Indeed, Capaldi, aged 26, looks more or less the same as he did when I met him three years ago. He's a little stockier, his hair is longer, but whatever he's been spending the proceeds from his debut album on, it visibly isn't a designer makeover. He says his friends are still essentially the same people he hung around with before his success. People who have nothing to do with music. Kyle the joiner, Michael the gravedigger, his flatmate Niall and Connor, who it turns out is in chart-topping dance duo LF system, but used to be a roofer. When Capaldi's career started to take off, Sheeran took him aside and offered a succession of dire warnings about fame. He said, Has your family started getting weird yet? Have there been any sort of fringe members of your family started to get weird with you? I said no. And he goes, What about your friends? And I said no. And he goes, That'll happen. It was like the most doomsday conversation I've ever had in my life. Cheers, Ed. 
That's really pepped me up. He said, fame doesn't change you. It changes everyone around you. I've experienced that for sure, but it's obviously not been as intense as it was for him. I'm very suspicious of people anyway. It comes from my father. He laughs. My dad hates everyone until they prove themselves. Ah, I like him. If I'm going on a date with a wee girl, he's like, what does she do? Why's she going out with you? He's very cautious and protective, and it's kind of bled down to me. In fact, he says dating is one area of his life that fame has made a bit weird. He got kicked off Tinder because someone thought he was impersonating Lewis Capaldi. Yeah, they thought I was catfishing. If I was going to catfish any celebrity, it wouldn't be me. You can't get many bites on a Lewis Capaldi Tinder account, and I know that because I own one. I just try to be as normal as possible with it. Being on Hinge and being on Tinder, a normal 26-year-old guy would be on Hinge. So, for my own sanity and to meet people, I need to be on these things. But then you have to worry about this sort of power imbalance. I have to assume that most girls my age, in the UK or Scotland at least, have a passing familiarity with who I am, even if they're not into me. So that makes things weird. It's an odd dynamic, where they'll at least have an idea of what I'm like, but I know nothing about them. On the other hand, we've seen so many men take advantage of their positions of power and their positions of influence. I don't want to take advantage of my position in that way. I'm happier being used than using someone. Do you know what I mean? A tight bunch of old friends, aware of his celebrity but unaffected by it, Capaldi seems about as well-adjusted a 20-something multi-millionaire pop star as he could wish to meet. There's just one problem. His Tourette's is still visibly raging. He thinks he has always had it, but just didn't realise. When I was four being tucked into bed, I would ask my mum if she'd locked the door over and over again. I don't know what four-year-old is that concerned with home security, but I never used to go to sleep because I was so worried about it. When I was a wee kid, I used to think I was ill all the time. I was convinced I had a brain tumour all my life. When I look back now and see things I did that kind of came and went, I realised they were ticks. Recently, he has played a few gigs and they went fine. At the moment, interviews seem to bring it on. Which is strange, because before interviews were fine. After we do this, I'll probably have a lie down in a dark room for 20 minutes, do some breathing and I'll be grand. When it is at its worst he says, it stops him sleeping. And then when I'm tired, it's worse. And when I'm stressed, it's worse. Sometimes it's not stress, but the anticipation of something. When I'm doing TV, it's really bad. Waiting to go on, I'll think, fuck, I can't handle this. I need to leave. Then I go on and it's fine. In traffic, fucking awful. It's the worst. It's just the fucking maddest thing. He's tried everything, to no avail. I've got medical cannabis, sertraline for my anxiety. I've done CBIT therapy, comprehensive behavioural intervention for tics. But they try to change where your tick is to something less invasive or more obstructing. But for me, so far, none of it has worked. I'm still learning a lot about it. I don't know too much and that's on me. I need to do my due diligence a bit. But right now, I don't want to take on too much about it. Because if learning about this fucking thing is going to make me more stressed about it, I mean, I'll tell you what works. Eating well, exercising, therapy, not boozing as much. I need to be mindful of that. And to be fair, I go through phases. I'll do two months, no booze, eating well, going to the gym, and I'll lose a bit of weight, feel grand, and then think, this is boring, I need to blow off some steam. 
So I go out at the weekend and then the week after think, I don't feel like I really got it out of my system and have four weeks where I go out every weekend, which is normal. But for my body, it doesn't work. What I need to do is find some balance in my life. There were moments when he was wondered if he would ever get on stage again. And I still get that from time to time now. I've got two shows in Switzerland the week after next and I'm thinking, fuck, I hope my twitch just doesn't kick in. It's always at the back of my thoughts. Under the circumstances, it's hard not to wonder aloud if all this, a new album, the expectations around it, interviews, a world tour, is really the best thing for him. The thing is, he says, he would probably be like this even if he weren't a pop star. It's been a contributing factor with my anxiety, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to the same insecurities, fear of not living up to something, imposter syndrome, which my friends have who work in finance or whatever. So it is to do with success, but you can boil it down to these really human feelings and thoughts. Besides, he insists, it is not as if anyone is forcing him. He would have cancelled the US tour in March 2020, even if the pandemic hadn't happened. If it gets too much, he will do the same thing. I have no qualms whatsoever about pulling the plug on things like that, and neither does anyone around me. If I'm on stage twitching and having a panic attack, it's not just a traumatic experience for me, it's more traumatic for the people around me. So I feel massively supported. I don't feel obliged to just fucking push through. You know what I mean? That was Would I Really Do Cocaine Before Going On Stage? Lewis Capaldi on Anxiety, Tourette's and Stupid Rumours by Alexis Petridis Read by Jeff Newland We'll be back after this short break. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday, launching on the 3rd of November. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Bye!
Welcome back to Weekend. Now, from Nosferatu to a nightmare on Elm Street, LGBTQ plus viewers have long detected a queer undertone in many horror films. Now, the genre is bringing its gay subtext to the surface. Guy Lodge takes a look back at a history of queer horror. Read by Robin Holdaway. Australian director Jennifer Kent didn't set out to make a queer classic when she wrote and shot The Babadook, a clever, sneakily terrifying independent film about a single mother and son terrorised by a strange supernatural entity sprung from the pages of a shabby children's picture book. Certainly no critics read it as such as the film made its way round the festival circuit in 2014, scooping acclaim and awards aplenty. However, The internet had other ideas. Over the next few years, various wags of Tumblr began to insist that the film's eponymous monster, a towering charcoal-sketched ghoul with a stovepipe hat, ice-pick fingers and an inordinate number of sharply rectangular teeth, was in fact a gay icon. Gradually, what began as a joke became a meme and eventually an insistent theory. LGBTQ plus fans of the film declaring themselves Baba Shook likened the on-screen family's fear of the weird, fangy beast to the panic and hostility that often greets the presence of queerness in predominantly straight households. Sure enough, Babadook images and costumes began to appear at Pride events. In 2019, the film's US distributor IFC Films even issued a limited Pride edition of the film on Blu-ray. I feel it's really quite beautiful, but I still have no idea why. Kent said of the film's queer appropriation. I guess he's an outsider of sorts. It's funny. Horror fans can debate among themselves whether the Babadook indeed falls under the banner of queer horror cinema. Sticklers for the genre definitions will probably declare it does not. But the film's trajectory is a perfect example of what an aptly fluid concept, queer horror, can be. One that covers films made by queer and straight artists alike, on expressly queer subjects or intricately coded ones, either intended for queer audiences or playfully adopted by them. In a sense, queer horror is a near tautological term. Virtually all horror cinema hinges on the fear of the other, the unknown, any threat to stable society, For many an LGBTQ plus person, that's the same terror with which they've been regarded by many an onlooker. That parallel makes it easy enough to place a queer reading into many a horror film that ostensibly plays it straight. Everything from The Shining to The Ring has been scrutinised through that lens, with both critics and casual viewers speculating about the unspoken alternative identities hovering in the film shadows. In promoting his new documentary series Queer for Fear, a history of queer horror cinema currently streaming on the Chiller-themed platform service Shudder, gay TV writer Brian Fuller, creator of the TV series Hannibal, argued that an education in the genre can begin early in life with something as innocuous as The Wizard of Oz. A profoundly frightening film for children, certainly. And as for its queerness, well, just look at it. More searching queer subtext in horror texts dates back, however, to the gothic novels of the 19th century, sometimes not even that subtextually. Irish author Sheridan Lefanu's Camilla, about a female vampire preying on a young woman, effectively coined the lesbian vampirism trope familiar in later horror storytelling. 
Long believed to have been a closeted homosexual, Bram Stoker loaded Dracula with enough polysexual illusions to keep academics busy for over a century. In 1922, closeted German filmmaker F.W. Murnau squeezed a good number of them into his unofficial, rampantly desire fueled adaptation, Nosferatu. Mary Shelley's similarly sinuously loaded Frankenstein, meanwhile, became the source of one of Hollywood's first canonically queer horror films, gay English director James Whale's definitive 1931 adaptation is marked by a distinctly queer empathy with Boris Karloff's socially vilified monster, presented as more vulnerably human than the vengeful villagers baying for his blood. The next year, Whale snuck a more comically queer sensibility into his haunted mansion romp The Old Dark House, which sees an assortment of travellers seeking shelter with an eccentric family of outcasts during a storm. The residents of the house are described as godless and coded as sexually free and deviant. One, the tellingly named Horace Fenn, is camply played to the rafters by gay actor Ernest Thesiger. Small wonder the film was a direct inspiration for the 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show, still surely the most fabulously out-and-proud queer horror comedy ever made. The imposition of the stringently moralistic, conservative Hayes Code on studio filmmaking in 1934, however, meant directors such as Whale had to get a little more subtle in queering up the genre. Undeterred, he proceeded with the sequel Bride of Frankenstein, in which the Doctor's attempt to create a wild-haired female mate for his lonesome monster doesn't exactly culminate in blissful union. She hate me, like others. The poor queer creature sighs after she rejects his hand in friendship. Whale Studio, Universal, also produced the foundational lesbian vampire film in Dracula's Daughter, which somehow skated past the code in its depiction of a glamorous, blood-sucking countess as happy to seduce and feed off women as men, perhaps because at one point she submits to a psychiatrist to cure her of vampirism. It doesn't work. Chalk up an early victory against conversion therapy. As the Hayes Code gradually grew obsolete before its eventual abandonment in the late 1960s, filmmakers got bolder and more literal in their presentation of queer characters in horror. The Haunting broke new ground in 1963 by making a principal character, Claire Bloom's intrepid psychic Theodora, shortened to Theo, an out lesbian, and not even a villain at that. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960, on the other hand, set a more prevalent trend with its cross-dressing serial-killing Oedipal case Norman Bates. Psycho's tone was a far cry from the gleefully rampant sexuality of a spate of sapphic vampire B-movies from the 1970s, including Hammer Films' own Carmilla adaptation The Vampire Lovers, not to mention Jesus Franco's self-explanatory Vampiros Lesbos, and, of course, the Rocky Horror phenomenon. As the AIDS pandemic raged, more hostile queer representations became widespread. In horror films ranging from Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing, to Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill, to Jonathan Demme's The Silence of the Lambs, serial killing was routinely linked to homosexuality, transgenderism and or transvestism. If this turnaround was in line with the AIDS panic, allyship came from sources both highbrow and low. Tony Scott's 1983 vampire glamour spread The Hunger positively feasted on the fluid sexual energy shared by Catherine Deneuve, Susan Sarandon and, who else? David Bowie. 
while 1985's lurid comedy Fright Night posed a suave pair of male suburban vampires as a gay couple challenging neighbourhood norms. Most unexpectedly, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, two years later, made the barest of efforts to hide its homoerotic gaze, while its closeted gay teen protagonist Jesse, so-called male scream queen Mark Patton, who would himself later come out as gay, emerges as a heroic survivor in the mould of horror's traditional final girl. And the leather-wrapped S&M genderqueerness of the demons in gay writer-director Clive Barker's Hellraiser, made in 1987, spoke for itself. This year's Hellraiser remake, with transgender actor Jamie Clayton in the iconic pinhead role, brings much of its forerunner's LGBTQ plus subtext plainly to the surface. Comparing the two is an object lesson in how much queer horror has transformed in the last few decades. At the turn of the 21st century, we were still dancing around symbolic representation of outsider sexual identity. See the implicitly queer outcast sisters of the delicious teen werewolf tale Ginger Snaps. Or presenting homosexuality as an alluringly dangerous threat, as in Alexandra Adger's thrillingly lurid but distinctly sex-negative high tension. Now, Queer perspectives are centred by queer filmmakers without shame or secrecy. Set in the world of gay porn, Jan Gonzalez's gorgeously grisly Knife and Heart is so heavily populated with queer characters, cavorting, killing and being killed with equal abandon, that they don't have to symbolise anything in relation to straight society. The moody 2017 ghost story Rift focuses on the haunting of a young gay couple by memories and trauma, that mainstay of modern art horror, but you can imagine much the same film being fashioned around a pair of straights. Both the recent Netflix phenomenon Fear Street and Helena Reng's grimly funny slasher comedy Bodies, Bodies, Bodies are built around the conscientious sexual fluidity of Generation Z. Their queer characters are warmly accepted, even when they are executed. Does that mean queer horror is losing its transgressive edge? Or is it simply louder and prouder in challenging mainstream sexual politics? If the Babadook has taught us anything, it's that the genre can surprise us, and sometimes even its makers, still. That was Visibly Horrified, The Coming Out of Queer Terror Cinema by Guy Lodge, read by Robin Holdaway. Finally, in a world saturated with wall-to-wall content, How did the social media company TikTok, whose speciality is short, bite-sized video sharing, reach a second year of online dominance? Alex Hearn discovers the secret source that piques viewers' interest time and time again. Read by Jeff Newland. It is, quite literally, the trillion-dollar question. How did TikTok go from a niche social network for lip-syncing teens to the most popular app in the Western world, threatening to knock Facebook off its perch entirely in just a few short years? There are no end of possible answers, and TikTok owes its phenomenal success to a host of canny choices. Easy-to-use video creation tools blurred the line between creator and consumer far more than YouTube had ever managed. A vast library of licensed music allowed teens to soundtrack their clips without fear of copyright strikes. A billion-dollar advertising campaign across Facebook and Instagram bought new users as quickly as Zuckerberg's company would send them over. 
But the most powerful tool TikTok has to grab users and keep them hooked is the company's fated For You page, the FYP, and the algorithm that populates it. The FYP is the default screen new users see when opening the app. Even if you don't follow a single other account, you'll find it immediately populated with a never-ending stream of short clips culled from what's popular across the service. That decision already gave the company a leg up compared to the competition. A Facebook or Twitter account with no friends or followers is a lonely, barren place, but TikTok is engaging from day one. It's what happens next that is the company's secret sauce, though. As you scroll through the FYP, the makeup of videos you're presented with slowly begins to change until, the app's regular users say, it becomes almost uncannily good at predicting what videos from around the site are going to pique your interest. The company is disarmingly open about how that algorithm works, at least on the surface. Recommendations are based on a number of factors, it said in 2020, including things like user interactions, such as the videos you like or share, accounts you follow, comments you post, and content you create. Video information, which might include details like captions, sounds and hashtags, and device and account settings, like your language preference, country setting, and device type. But how these various inputs are weighted and what precise factors lead any particular video to end up on your feed is opaque, says Chris Stokel-Walker, author of TikTok Boom. One person at TikTok in charge of trying to track what goes viral and why told me in my book that there's no recipe for it. There's no magic formula. The employee even admitted that it's a question I don't think even the algo team have the answer to. It's just so sophisticated. One crucial innovation is that, unlike older recommendation algorithms, TikTok doesn't just wait for the user to indicate that they like a video with a thumbs up or satisfy itself by judging what a user chooses to view. Instead, it appears to actively test its own predictions, experimenting by showing videos that it thinks might be enjoyable and gauging the response. It pushes the boundaries of your interests and monitors how you engage with those new videos it seeds in your For You page, Stokel Walker says. If it thinks you like videos about Formula One, it might show you some videos about supercars. That experimentation doesn't just allow the service to rapidly discern the contours of an individual viewer's interests. It's also an important part of what the site offers creators, says Sasha Morgan Evans, head of the TikTok studio at creative agency OK Cool. Every video posted on TikTok gets served to at least one person on the For You page. We figured out based on how views accumulate, that TikTok serves each individual video to batches of people. The number of users in these batches increases with each successful round. One where a majority of users within a batch had a high number of positive interactions with the video. That means that every user has the chance of global fame. Even if you have no followers at all, your video will eventually make it onto someone's For You page. And even if they are deemed to have engaged positively, you can reach thousands or millions of viewers extremely quickly. And the speed of the videos helps TikTok hone its data rapidly. Think about how many videos you watch in an hour on YouTube, Stokel Walker says, and the data that generates about you versus how many you can watch on TikTok. The FYP isn't magic though, and the ways it fails can be just as instructive as the ways it succeeds. New users of the app will notice that it is obsessive about harvesting personal data begging for access to the contacts list, 
and tracking every inbound and outbound shared video. Deny it those data points and it is forced to present the most generic possible version of the feed, personalised to what little it can determine from broad geolocation and device details. But when it works, the algorithm is so good at what it sets out to do that TikTok appears almost overwhelmed by its power, Stokel Walker says. It's even slipped in messages to users it thinks are too addicted, saying they should put the phone down. One such message shown from the company's TikTok Tips account to users scrolling through their feed for hours straight late at night, features TikTok star Gabe Irwin imploring the viewer to go get some extra sleep, turn your phone off, do yourself that favour and have a great night. The company has also added new screen time features, particularly for younger users, turning off notifications past bedtime and allowing users to set a maximum time on the app each day in an effort to limit the most compulsive use of its app. As TikTok moves into its second year of online dominance, the app overtook YouTube for average time per user in September 2021 and has stayed at the top ever since. The big question is whether its algorithmic success can remain a unique selling point. Facebook certainly hopes not. The social network, along with corporate sibling Instagram, recently announced an overhaul of its apps to focus on an aggressive new algorithmic curation engine. Just like TikTok, Facebook and Instagram will now show you vast quantities of content from users you don't follow, with posts from friends buried in between or hidden on a separate following feed behind a tab. The change was poorly received, leading to an apology video from Instagram boss Adam Masseri, who said the company would be dialing back some of the alterations but that ultimately, this was the future. We're going to try and get better at recommendations, he said, because we think it's one of the best ways to help creators reach a new audience and grow their following. If there is a threat to TikTok's algorithmic crown, it might be from the company itself. The app dominates user attention, but has historically been lightly monetized. As a privately held company, TikTok doesn't publish revenue figures, but in 2021, Research firm eMarketer estimates it took in $4 billion a year, less than 5% of Facebook's revenue. In 2022, the company has tried to grow that. It's taken the traditional approach, with more adverts injected into the feed, but also tried more novel opportunities, including a push for QVC-style live shopping experiences, lifted from Chinese sister app Douyin. The launch went poorly. Hosts and brands had to be subsidised by TikTok, which pushed deep discounts in sales, but failed to garner a regular returning audience. Sales with too-good-to-be-true prices were undercut by other items, whose prices really were too good to be true. The platform struggled with a counterfeiting problem, leaving users unclear if a Dyson hairdryer worth £450 is selling for £14 because of a subsidy or a scam. But if TikTok can work out how to balance the commercially necessary tweaks to its algorithm with the pure compulsion of the FYP at its best, or worst, then it will have created an artefact of tech history that will go down alongside the newsfeed, infinite scroll and Snapchat story as emblematic of the social media era. That was How TikTok's Algorithm Made It a Success. It Pushes the Boundaries, read by Alex Hearn. Before we go, 
we wanted to tell you about the upcoming Politics Weekly America special episodes. Guardian columnist and former Washington correspondent Jonathan Friedland is on the ground in the United States for this year's crucial midterm elections. Jonathan will be speaking to politicians, voters and canvassers in the run-up to November 8th. The special episodes will conclude in Washington, D.C., with blow-by-blow analysis of election night. Listen to five episodes across 10 days from Wednesday, the 2nd of November. Just search for Politics Weekly America wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's articles are read by Robin Holdaway and Jeff Newland and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.